Tonight I want to talk about the qualities of mindfulness. In Pali, the word is sati, which I might use some throughout the talk. Sati, because it's mindfulness is a fairly specific quality of mind. And God knows we've been talking about it a lot, and we will continue to do so, because it's the linchpin of our practice here. And I want to begin to speak about it specifically because it's a quality, the qualities of mindfulness we can experience very directly when we're paying attention. And so I hope to be able to kind of uh, help us get more familiar with what the qualities of sati mindfulness are so that we can recognize them when they're present and also that they can be developed. It's not something that, you know, we just hope it falls from the sky by the grace of God. Um, So I find it, in my own practice, helpful to explore and investigate these qualities. The Buddha said once that sati, mindfulness, is the greatest protection we have in life. And it's the only protection we need in life. And first, in a very obvious way, we can see that sati is a protection in our mind from being completely overwhelmed by the forces of greed, of hatred or aversion, of delusion. These disturbances of the mind and heart, places, torments of the mind, defilements, all these different words. And most of us know that, at least on a very obvious level. We know that when we're really consumed by anger or by wanting, that we can't see a situation clearly. We're not protected. And I've seen that just in the last couple days here. Several people have come um, that I've been seeing, and probably there's just as many others that I'm not, in some situation where they're either really angry at someone here or really wanting something very badly, and really having a sense, is this note okay to send? Or is this thing that I want to get, you know, and I want to do, and they'll have this incredible string of machinations to go through to acquire something. And there's a sense, is this a little out of balance? I mean, is this really accurate? What am, I, am I getting carried away here? And I think that's the beginning of wisdom. It's like, yeah, we know. Our perception of what's going on is really distorted. We can't trust it. We're being overwhelmed at that point by greed or hatred or confusion. So mindfulness can protect us from this. And these distortions, okay, we start to be aware of them when we're really gripped now by them. And that's the first step to knowing actuality, is to know that our perception is really distorted. But these disturbances work on many, many more subtle levels than this in our experience. I know Joseph's spoken of this factor of our experience of perception, the recognition quality of what's happening that's present in each moment of our experience. And the noting is, in fact, a function 
of this perception, its ability to recognize. When the qualities of greed, hatred, delusion, on all their many ramifications, I'm just not naming them all, but we all know them well enough, when they're arising in the mind, even in very subtle ways, that those qualities of greed, of aversion, confusion, act as filters on our perception so that when perception occurs, we're actually not able to perceive correctly what the experience is. And then our responses and our reactions are based on this incorrect, confused perception. And it just goes from one confusion and difficulty to the next, and we wonder why things don't seem to work. So my favorite example of this is from a book called Vital Lies, Simple Truths, or The Psychology of Self-Deception by a man named Daniel Goleman. And he gives a few examples of scientific psychological experiments that were carried out looking at this way that our perception can be so biased, distorted, or things can actually be shut out of conscious perception. We begin how aversion works. By aversion is simply that movement of the mind, of the attention, away from something that's unpleasant, difficult, terrorizing, excruciatingly painful, or just very mildly unpleasant. That movement filters our perception. So examples of ways that the mind seems to block conscious knowing or even conscious perception of stimuli that are actually or potentially threatening, painful, fearful. The first example he gives is um, from last century of someone who was being mauled by a lion and was conscious of it and lived through it and reported afterwards that obviously his body was really being ripped apart, but he was not in touch with being in pain. And then the speculation is that somehow it's a survival mechanism of our body because if he'd been overcome with the pain and the shock of that, he probably never would have been able to maintain presence of mind to get away. And so the, the book continues theorizing that now that um, defense mechanism, so to speak, might seem to work with stimuli that are not actually physically uh, painful or threatening, but that are actually really emotionally threatening or anxiety-producing, or only possibly anxiety-producing. The experiment here, uh, the one I remember anyway, there were several. They had uh, subjects looking at a series of different pictures and then having to later uh, remember and recount what the different pictures were that they'd looked at. At the same time, (laughs) they had so many weird things. They had some little device that could actually measure very precisely where the person's eyeball looked so they could tell if they'd looked at the whole picture or if they'd avoided certain parts of the picture. And the, the one that I remember is 
some picture, part of which would be completely neutral, like some guy sitting there reading a newspaper, and then the other half would be completely out of context with that. And so the one I remember is something that was very sexually suggestive and really out of context with the picture. And people that that was threatening or anxiety-provoking for uh, later in recounting the pictures wouldn't remember that part at all, just totally wouldn't remember it. I would only remember the man reading the newspaper. But even more interesting, they could measure that somehow their eyes had known not to even look at that half of the picture. It's really deeply conditioned. And so, of course, our perception is skewed. It's distorted. And sometimes this might be necessary for... uh, repressing memories of, of things like childhood trauma when you have to continue in the situation and it would be literally unbearable. But we do it so many times, like looking at a, a picture like that that's going to bring up a little anxiety where it's not necessary. The same with the tendency of mind of grasping, of moving toward. It gives us a sense of tunnel vision that expectations are what we want, tends to keep the mind from perceiving stimuli or experience that is outside of that or in the way. And so for this experiment, they showed subjects a four-minute video of a very fast basketball game. You know, the ball passes back and forth between people a lot. And the assignment was to count very precisely how many times the ball was passed. And that was all that was said. And in the middle of this, apparently a woman dressed in white with a white parasol kind of sauntered across the middle of the basketball court. Nobody commented on it in, in recounting how many times it was passed. And when they were told about it, they were shocked. Couldn't believe it had happened. And then when they showed the video, of course you couldn't miss it. It's like, impossible. how could I have ever not seen that? How often has that happened in our meditation? All of a sudden, oh, right, wanting. How could I not see that was wanting? You know, it hits you in the face. This, this skewing of our perception of a reality, this is what we call delusion. And things don't work. No wonder we're out of touch. We are out of touch. We don't know what's happening half the time, but we think we do. So we have these huge blind spots in our perception, in our idea of what our experience really is. You know, selective memory, selective perception, unconscious choosing of what to notice and what not to notice. So just this aversion, avoidance, denial, anything that's potentially painful, threatening to our worldview, which we might not even be aware of what our worldview is, something potentially painful, outright denial, the wanting mind, how greed gives us tunnel vision. We only see what we want or need and discount or avoid other things. And identification, the sense of identifying with any part or moment of our experience as me, solid, lasting, unchanging I, Perhaps the most, it is the most insidious of these qualities. For example, 
we identify with the idea, I am stupid. And then we proceed to only acknowledge any perception that fits that idea we have and to completely discount any perception that doesn't. I mean, often, I do it myself. Ten people will come up and say, oh, you did such and so really well. No, they're stupid. They don't know. They didn't listen. The 11th person comes and says, that stank. And I go, yeah, you're really right. (laughs) We do this a lot. Delusion. Filtering, skewing our perception, which then colors and skews our whole experience of reality. This is suffering. And this is where the power of sati, the power of mindfulness, comes in. It's an amazingly powerful force for cutting through this ability we have to avoid and deceive ourselves. Through cultivating this quality of mindfulness, what happens as we work with it is the light of awareness, of acknowledgement, it begins to shine equally on whatever object, whatever experience is arising into our consciousness at any given moment. We're not discriminating. I'll pick some, maybe I'll pay attention to that. No, 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 I won't pay attention to that one. Ignore it. We just begin to shine the light of mindfulness equally on whatever happens to be arising without choice. And this then begins to include even the filters. In some ways, that's why after we've been sitting as long as we have now, sometimes things seem worse. Because what you're seeing is greed and aversion and confusion. You think, God, I'm so much worse than when I started. But it's because the mindfulness, sati, is getting stronger. And we're seeing what we previously didn't even know was there. Previously unattended to experiences are now being received with the equal non-discriminating quality of sati, and they begin to come into awareness. We're not so driven to deny and avoid painful things or to desperately hold on to the pleasant and a little bit at least, this toing and froing of the mind and heart begins to be calmed down. And this drive, this toing and froing, is the source of our conflict. And we all have moments, I'm sure, you must have all at least had one moment in the two weeks, is it two weeks, that we've been doing intensive practice now, where this toing and froing just for a moment ceases. And instead of having our perception colored with confusion, aversion, wanting, it's just clear the stillness, the peace that is more our real nature is allowed to shine forth. It becomes apparent. And that's not always some spectacular moment. It's those times when you're just sitting there drinking a cup of tea, and suddenly that's all. It's just totally the lifting or the sensation or the taste. And in later, in retrospect, you think, that was the most wonderful cup of tea. There was nothing different about that cup of tea. It was that in that moment, there was no wanting it to continue, no aversion, just total presence. Mindfulness was strong, that clarity 
of no delusion. Appreciating the exquisiteness of the trees today, but not wanting it to continue, just seeing it clearly. Those moments are moments when our perception of presence is not so distorted. When mindfulness is stronger and the sense of the stillness, the peace that is what we are, is more apparent. These disturbances, these distortions, greed, hatred, delusion, they're really strong. They're also impermanent. Without sati, we tend to take them for granted. We don't even notice them. We think, well, this is the way it is. We think that's who we are. And it's not. When we bring our fullness of attention to the experience, and we begin to find that what we assume to be true is not necessarily so. And sati is the quality of mind that does this that lets us come face to face, as it were, with a direct experience and to know it for what it really is. Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen master poet, said once that to have a correct perception, we need to have a direct encounter. That's what mindfulness is, a direct encounter with each moment of experience. Okay, so what are these qualities of mindfulness, observing power? It's much more than a kind of a vague, general sense of awareness that we sometimes can think of it as. So there's a few qualities I want to talk about. And hopefully as I talk about them, don't try to see if you can really feel it experientially, what the quality of energy experience is that I'm talking about, because at different moments we've all experienced it, rather than you know filing it away in the mind as another idea, oh, let me remember these four qualities of mindfulness. It's like, forget it, that won't help. But just sit and let it come in and see if you can feel or recognize any of these qualities in your experience. Okay, so the first is that Sati is a very alert, active quality of attention. It's very energetic, but the energy springs not from a driving, grim force, but from interest, a really deep interest. And we're all capable of a very precise, sustained quality of interest. When you go to the movies, there's a certain quality of interest, unless it's really a lousy movie. There's a sense of you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment, even if it's not a suspense movie, but even more if it is. And so we're really present just to be there and see what happens in the next moment. And we can all do that for a period of an hour or two hours. And it's the same in our life. We don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. When you sit down to sit, you have no idea What's going to happen in the next moment of sitting or the next moment of walking? I often, when I'm on retreat, I sit down and I go, okay, what's the show going to be this time? Who knows? And so can we bring the same quality of interest to our life process 
that we can bring to a movie or a football game. I was in uh, San Francisco during the Super Bowl last year. For those of you from out of the country, this is this big American football playoff, and for some reason the whole country has to stop and watch this game for three hours. (laughs) And San Francisco was where one of the teams was from. And I have a lot of friends there, and everybody I knew and then everyone I didn't know stopped and watched this game. So I watched it too. And the quality of interest and attention was unbelievable. Every single move. It was not a pure interest. It was definitely tainted with expectation and greed. (laughs) It was not undiscriminating. But it was very powerful. And I thought later, you know, why can't we bring Super Bowl mind to our life? Why is our life so boring? And what Joe Montana throws a football around is so fascinating. So we have the ability, you know, but are we willing, are we interested enough to use it? But when we have that interest, then this alert quality, this energetic quality of mindfulness is present without forcing. So then we have this alert attention that moves without discrimination or hesitation. So in other words, this might sound kind of technical, but it's actually uh, the way one can sometimes experience noting, noting something. It's as if an experience arises into our consciousness, a sensation, a sound, a thought, whatever, and immediately the knowing mind rises up to meet it. Immediately the knowing mind moves to that sensation, that sound, notes it, and really sinks into it, knows it for what it is. There's no hesitation, and there's no discrimination. There's a sensation. Immediately the knowing mind arises. It's as if it moves to it, notes it, sinks into it, becomes it. So, oh, there's throbbing, throbbing, and just really with it. We don't hesitate. Oh, should I note this? I don't know. I don't like it so much. I'll wait till a nicer sensation comes along. That doesn't really work, because that moment of hesitation of discrimination is, of course, the moment when the distortions can come flooding in. Because if we hesitate, it's usually it's a little unpleasant, it's threatening, or we're clinging possibly, there's wanting going on, there's something more pleasant going on. This calm is so nice. And if I notice that pain, it might get worse and then the calm will go away. So we'll just pretend it's not there and stay with the calm. Calm, calm, calm. You're noting calm in a total state of tension. It doesn't work to hesitate or discriminate. So mindfulness has this active quality of the knowing mind springing up and coming to meet whatever it is without time to hesitate or think about it. You can see from this that this alert quality of sati needs energy. And we can't just kind of, oh, okay, well, something will happen, and then the mindfulness will come, oh, yeah, that sensation. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't last too long. It tends to kind of peter out. We've spoken before about the Eightfold Path, how it's divided into three segments, one segment dealing with wisdom, one segment dealing with morality, and the last three-part segment 
is called the samadhi group or the concentration group. And those are the factors of right effort or energy, right mindfulness, right concentration. These three qualities, energy, mindfulness, concentration, work together. And so I want to just give an example of how the energy supports and sustains the mindfulness. The classic example that they give is, this you can tell this comes from Asia, is throwing a stone at a wet mud wall. To throw the stone, to aim it and really throw it hard enough to connect with the wall takes a certain amount of effort. It takes energy. Otherwise, there's never any connection that's going to happen or you just miss it altogether. That's the effort. That's the energy factor. Then sati, the mindfulness, is like that stone hitting the wall and really hitting it squarely, directly, and sinking into it, clearly meeting the wall, knowing it. It's not a superficial quality. It doesn't just kind of hit the wall and glance off. It really sinks in. It knows it for what it is. Then with the help of that enough energy to really reach the wall and the mindfulness to meet it, sink in, know it for what it is, the stone can stay stuck in the wet mud for a long period of time, and then that's the concentration. So you see how the three all work together, and they all need to be balanced together. They support and strengthen one another. So sati needs this active quality of energy. But I, in my own practice, have found it important not to mistake effort for sati. Sometimes when I'm not quite knowing what's happening, there's a sense of just push, 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 and the mindfulness will get stronger. You can push, but you could be pushing in the wrong direction, too. The mindfulness is we need enough energy to reach what's happening, but the mindfulness is meeting and really knowing what it is that's happening. So that brings me to the next quality of sati, which is this one of that it knows what's actually happening, the bare experience, as opposed to all our concepts and interpretations and ideas about what's happening. And again, we all know this, and we definitely, that's what we're all trying to do. It just can be quite insidious how a concept and interpretation can get so bound up, so tied up into the experience that we can keep on mistaking the interpretation for the bare experience. Very simple example. Someone's just following rise and fall, rise and fall, and it's tight and unpleasant. And the idea, interpretation starts up, I'm such a rigid, controlling, tight person. And it's believed, identified with. And it becomes inseparable in one's mind from the sensation of the tightness of the breath. When we confuse the two like this, we're taking the I'm a rigid, controlling person to be the actuality of the experience. When we're confusing the interpretation with the actual experience, that's where these skewed perceptions begin to arise. In this case, the whole experience is colored with identification and aversion. Uh, We're losing touch with reality again. 
Each breath then strengthens the concept, oh, I'm so rigid and controlling. I can't do anything about it. I'm so ungenerous. And that gives rise to more aversion, <clears throat> which unseen gives rise to more proliferation of thought, memories of how rigid and controlling we've been in our whole life, how we'll continue to be in the future, more resistance, more aversion. Pretty soon the whole thing is set in concrete and breathing becomes a torment. And we all do this in many ways. It's right here, right when we're in such a place like this, even before we get there too, but once we're in it, that mindfulness is really such a powerful protection. And I was, when I was writing this earlier, I, like I had a conceptual idea this is true. And just before I was walking outside, I don't remember what, but just some things started going on in my mind. I don't know, feeling nervous or thinking about something else and not noticing the trees and feeling tightness. And suddenly I realized, yeah, it's our strongest protection. Because what one does is in that moment of sati, coming out of all the, this means that, and I feel like this, and what about this, and just dropping into the bare experience. Tightness, hearing, walking, aversion, thinking. In that moment of our conscious, knowing mind coming together directly with the experience, whatever it is, with this, with the tight breath, with the sensation of tightness, with the aversion, with the unpleasantness, with the thought, the mindfulness brings us face to face with that experience, just as it is. And it's such a strong protection, the sati, because in that moment of coming in direct contact, really sinking into the sensation of tightness in the breath, in that one moment, there's no room for overpowering greed or aversion or confusion to come up and overwhelm us. The attention and the arising experience are connected, really closely sinking into one another, and there's not room for all these disturbances to come in. And this we can actually experience over and over and over. It's incredibly powerful. Simply knowing and being with the bare experience. Like just before, when I was walking over here from next door, what I just described, I was kind of knowing, all oh, the trees are pretty, the wind is blowing, this is a lovely night, I'm feeling tension. It's just all the calaces starting to expand. And in that moment of connecting with tightness, the whole thing just drops away. There's just a sense of tightness and the knowing of it. And there's not a problem. It's unpleasant. And the knowing of it. And it's not a problem. It just cuts through all that proliferation and distortion that's why such moments, when we're just with the breath, or you've been fighting a pain the whole sitting, and suddenly you're just with it, and there's not a problem. They're so fulfilling, because again, that distortion, that clouding of our perception is not there. There's no conflict. This is what we call a moment of purification of the mind. Often we talk about this as a path of purification. A purification because in that moment, 
And a moment is quick, admittedly. But in that moment, these disturbances of greed, hatred, and delusion are not arising in that moment of mindfulness, of close connection with what's going on. In the next moment, they may arise again. But in this moment, they're not. And that is a very powerful moment. It's breaking the momentum of the delusion, the identification, the anger. It might not seem like much. And often it's no big deal of an experience to say, okay, big deal. I had a moment of mindfulness and the rest of the day I was lost in confusion. Big deal. I'm going to do this for three months. But it, it is It is a very powerful moment. Don't underestimate it. It's a moment of purification. It's a moment where instead of strengthening the power of anger, the power of confusion by just feeding into it, we're cutting. That momentum is being cut right there. And what is being strengthened and conditioned is the power of mindfulness. It's been said that a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Just a moment. But it's also true that each moment that is conditioned by sati is the cause for succeeding moments of mindfulness to arise. And in fact, mindfulness is the strongest cause for mindfulness to arise. So each moment is slowly building on each preceding moment. And it's a very powerful conditioning force. It was like Sharon talked about getting wet in the fog the other moment, the other morning. We don't really notice it when it's happening. It's like filling a bucket drop by drop, and it seems to take forever if what we're looking at is wanting to get to the top. But this is why we emphasize continuity so much. Because each moment of mindfulness has a real power of purification, of clarity, of deconditioning, so to speak, the distortions. And it has a real power of bringing us into the next moment of mindfulness, the next moment of mindfulness. And so the continuity is a very important aspect of this practice. Upandita once gave the uh, example of it's like trying to use a piece of brass for a mirror and you look at it and it's all cloudy and you can't really see much of anything. So you start rubbing it and rubbing it and rubbing it. And each rub doesn't seem to do much at all. But eventually you can really see yourself quite clearly in it. You couldn't really ever point to where in the process it changed. But each rub is setting the conditions for the next one and the next one and the next one. And it's all a process of deepening purification and clarity. It's also interesting to notice in working with continuity. First, in some ways, I find it a huge relief. Not thinking about it. Thinking about it is an incredible burden. If you think about being continuous every moment of the day, it's like, forget it. But the actual doing of it, I find in many ways to be an incredible relief. Because the doing of it doesn't mean 
I'm going to be continuously mindful if it kills me for this next 73 minutes. The doing of it means what's happening right now? Oh, tightness. Releasing. Lifting. Drinking. Washing. So whatever is happening, that's what we wake up and bring our attention back to. And it's a relief because it takes away any sense of pressure that I've got to hurry and get through this and get to something more important. If eating is just as important as washing, is just as important as sitting, then all I have to do is be willing to bring my total attention and presence to this particular moment, whatever it is. Whatever it is. It doesn't matter. And in some ways, that takes away a sense of, I've got to really get there in this sitting, because the sitting's what it's all about. Turning the doorknob is just as important. you start to see that it's the direct knowing, this quality of sati, that's important. Not what the experience is that we're knowing. And for me, that took away a huge sense of striving to get some special experience so that then my meditation was okay. And it takes it down to, can I just be totally connected, bring the sati to bear to really face this experience of touching? And that's all. I watched on a retreat once what happened. It was really kind of interesting. I guess I was in kind of a mellow place because I didn't get into too much self-judging. But what happened when I had been quite continuous and to see what happened when the continuity, when I just kind of let it up. And I remember clearly I was sitting in my room looking at a tree outside and looking at the leaves. I was very mindful. I was noting know, the, the seeing and the mind's reactions and the pleasantness and the liking. It's really quite there. No big deal. And just sort of, I can't remember if I did it on purpose or not, but let up. So, okay, I'll just take a break. No noting, just being here. And it was, I was very, it was a very peaceful experience because I was just quite present. Within, I want to say like a, a minute, I think it was more like a second of not being particularly mindful and not in a striving way, but just that willingness to be present. It's like wanting and desire and aversion and opinions just came rushing in. It was really fascinating, a little disheartening. <laughs> but just to see how when that connection isn't there, how mindfulness is such a protection, and when there starts to be that space between the knowing mind and what's happening, the most conditioned things to come in is, oh, I like this, those leaves are nice, and I'm kind of hungry, I think I'll go for a walk, what am I doing here? Oh, right, noting. And it was gone again. Really interesting. Okay, and the last really important quality. None of this is or can really be done. Mindfulness does not function from repression or from forcing. It's energetic, yes. It's not intense, tense striving. So, for example, if in everything I've been saying, it sounds all very clear-cut, nice and clean, a lot of our experience isn't going to be like this. I'm talking about these qualities as to get us a sense of being familiar with them, as possibilities, as, as 
understanding the nature, to recognize the energy of sati, not to use it to beat ourselves up because there's not every moment, you know, this strong face-to-face, alert, active attention and connecting, you know. It often won't be. And that's when this next quality is really important to bring in. The quality that sati is totally nonviolent, totally non-manipulative. It's got nothing to do with trying to change experience or make it be a certain way or judge it. It's that completely allowing and accepting quality of mind almost like a quality of metta with whatever is arising. Quality that helps me most, I'm just trying to use different words to invoke it, is a quality of, of spaciousness. This huge wide spaciousness that directly acknowledges whatever it is that's arising in our experience but is also totally spacious with whatever's arising. The sense that I get last night going outside with the sense of the beautiful, almost full moon, a couple of stars, that is an experience. Very clear, very present. But the quality of all the space of the sky around it, acknowledging and holding that experience, almost as if cradling it. But there's no sense of, well, let's hold on. We don't want the moon to set. You know, it doesn't make any sense. There's no sense of, oh, we don't like the moon, we wish it would go away and the sun would come back. In that quality of spaciousness, it can cradle and appreciate whatever comes and also let it go. And this is the other quality of sati that can balance this active, energetic quality. Yes, we really meet the experience, but with this wide, all-embracing spaciousness. The whole range of experiences can come and go. And it's not a problem. So if we think we know what good practice looks like or what it should look like, and we don't notice and note this, then it's really hard to be spacious and allow any experience that doesn't fit that to really be met with mindfulness and spaciousness, to let it come, let it be present, let it go, and be there fully for it. With the spaciousness of the sky, there is no special experience to have. There's only the ability to be fully present, actively knowing it just for what it is, and let it go. So sati our greatest protection protects us from heedlessness, basically walking through life like we're asleep, not knowing what we're doing, performing unskillful acts, hurting ourselves or others from heedlessness, from not knowing what's going on. It protects us through purifying our mind, from moments of freedom from the distortions of greed, of aversion, of delusion. Sati weakens the power of these unwholesome mental states while it strengthens the power of seeing clearly. 
And through the ability of sati to know deeply what is happening, just as it is, without discriminating in a non-superficial way, really deeply knowing, it lets us see and know the truth of any moment for ourselves from our own experience clear experience of the reality of this moment. And a moment that's free from the distortions of these confusions, these disturbances of mind, that is a moment that is the condition for liberating insight and compassion to arise. Insight and compassion both arise from the direct knowing of reality in this moment, in this moment. And once we understand, know the truth for ourselves of who we are, what we are, what's the reality of this moment, and to me that's the greatest protection of all, because what we know for ourselves Nothing, and no one can take that away from us. No one can come and say that's not true. It doesn't matter. We know. It's our own experience. No one else can give it to us either. Close with a quotation by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was talking about uh, Day of Liberation from the prison camps in Russia. The Day of Liberation as if it were possible to liberate anyone who has not first become liberated in their own soul, or if if it were possible to take away the freedom of anyone who is. Let's sit for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. 